You've reached voicemails from history. You have one new message. Written in 1692, the Kurdish writer and poet Ahmed Khani wrote in his classic, Mirmuzin, the following passage. Quote, Look, from the Arabs to the Georgians, the Kurds have become like towers. The Turks and Persians surrounded by them. The Kurds are on all four corners. Both sides have made the Kurdish people targets for the arrows of fate. They are said to be the keys to the borders, each tribe forming a formidable bulwark. Whenever the Ottoman Sea and the Tajik Sea flow out and agitate, the Kurds get soaked in blood. Hi there, and welcome to episode three of the Voicemails from History podcast, season two. I'm your host, as ever, Mr. Amin, history teacher by day, history reader by night. We're continuing our look into 20th century Kurdish history, focusing on the Kurds in Iran from the 1890s to the 1930s. The story of Persian Kurds and a key individual called Simko Ara is not as well known as other periods of Kurdish history. I'd like to present the case that Simko's story and what the Kurds experienced under Reza Shah in the 30s with the looming gloom of the Soviets was a significant period and provided the context needed for the later national movements in Kurdistan. We're beginning our story today in Russia, then we'll make our way down to Persia. We're obviously going to mention the lovely island of Great Britain and the Kurds as we go. Following the October Revolution in 1917, led by Lenin and his communist ilk, the Bolsheviks, they overthrew the provisional Russian government and set up the Soviet Republic. This would later become, once the Civil War ended, the Soviet Union, a federal union of many different national republics, its politics and economy running in a communist spirit. On the part of Western Europe, Russian communism was met with hatred and suspicion by the respective governments of Britain, France, Germany, and to an extent, the newfound Republic of Turkey, in full swing by 1923. In the last episode, we mostly discussed uh, Britain, France, and Turkey, and how their competing interests led to the confluence of treaties like Pico, Sevres, and Lausanne, which ultimately left the Kurds out in the cold, with no state or equal rights in their new host countries of Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. What I omitted was the fourth key state, Iran, and the interference of the Soviet Union in the Middle East. We're going to try to look at the Kurds from their perspective and what the context running up to the founding of the Republic of Mahabad, a key watershed moment in Kurdish history, was like. Now, in the early 30s, the Soviet Union was still pretty much trying to find itself. Communism was seen as a breath of fresh air, so it was said, breathing new life into a previous world system which for the last 100 years had really been dominated with brutal Western imperialism, unfettered capitalism, a truly dog-eat-dog world. In season one, uh, episode two of the Crimean Tatars, we looked at the indigenous group of people living in the Crimean Peninsula, who at the time were obviously under the rule of the Soviets, and we discussed the Soviet policy of nativization. So this was in a bid to distance themselves from um, degrading Western thinking towards people of non-European descent. The Soviets encouraged their multitudes of ethnic groups to literally, quote, nationalize, encouraging them to read and write in their mother tongue language, celebrate their festivals, 
uh, wear their traditional clothes, essentially maintain their distinct ethnic markers whilst being integrated into a wider socialist economy. Now, the Soviet Kurds, living in the spheres mostly of Soviet Armenia and parts of Soviet Azerbaijan, were affected by these communist nationality policies. In this period, in the early 20s, it allowed for the first sort of practical institutions such as Kurdish libraries and publishing houses to be developed. Scholarly work on the Kurds was also produced. As many as 30 Kurdish schools were established and a regular production of Kurdish books and novels as well. And for the first time, the first Kurdish language newspaper. It was printed in Kurmanji Kurdish and it was called Regi Kalza, A New Path. Then, in July 1934, a Congress of Kurdologists was held for the first time in Erivan, now known as Yerevan, the capital of Armenia. They discussed developing a Kurdish dictionary, a curriculum, grammar to train Kurdish language teachers. According to a Soviet source, the two republics of Armenia and Azerbaijan were told off at times, reprimanded by the authorities for neglecting to give the Kurds a proper standing in their republics, and they were accused of racist practices. Now, we shouldn't overdo the positives of the policy towards the Kurds, um, as it wasn't a complete free-for-all. Whilst the Armenians were granted a full republic, i.e. territory, the Kurds were only granted, quote, small nation status, so they were, in fact, a minority group within a minority republic. And so their, you know, political standing wasn't wasn't particularly effective. Unfortunately for the Kurds and all the other ethnic groups of the Soviet Union, this flourishing of culture came to an abrupt um, end. As the 30s waxed on, Stalin became more and more deranged. Starting in 1937, the Great Purge, or the Great Terror as it was called, was initiated and it was this brutal suppression of those who he perceived to be his enemies. Pretty much everyone. So targets were officers, officers in the Red Army, to the Kulaks who were peasants who owned land, and the ethnic minorities. The freedom of expression was stopped, so publishing houses were shut down, languages were banned, the Cyrillic alphabet replaced all others, and the newspaper for the Kurds, Regataza, was shut down, and thousands of Kurds were deported to Central Asia. Now, despite the Soviet Union's treatment of the Kurds in their own territory, they still recognised their utility outside of their borders. Now, Turkey, as we discussed last episode, has had established itself as a European ally, and their relationship with the Soviets was still rather shaky. During Lausanne, which ratified Turkey's new borders, the Russians were left embittered, angered even, but despite previous promises made by the British and the French, the Straits, uh, were given to Turkey and they were demilitarised and declared as open water zones. The Straits are those, it's that two waterway regions in the north of Turkey, the Dardanelles and the Bosporus. Now, despite the Soviets keeping on relatively good relations with the new uh, Turkish Republic, they still knew that the growing national movements of the Kurds within Turkey and, uh, and Iran were opportunities for them to seize upon when and if the time was right. Okay, so let's head down south now to Iran, where American political scientist Richard Cottam observes, quote, Nowhere in the world is British cleverness so wildly exaggerated as in Iran, and nowhere are the British most hated for it. By 1919, Britain and the Soviet Union were making moves to bring Persia onto their side. 
For decades, Persia had maintained a strong link with Britain. Since around 1790, Persia was ruled by the Qajar dynasty, an Iranian royal family from the Qajar tribe who descended from the Turkoman chieftains in Central Asia. By the 1850s, there was a growing discontent. The majority of Persia was still illiterate, social and economic equalities were huge, and the relationship between the Shah, the title of the king for Persia, and the British was incredibly corrupt, based on foreign bribery and money in exchange for concessions, which angered large sects of the Persian elites and the lay people. One striking example of really just how far Persia had fallen into British hands was the case of Baron Julius de Reuter, a naturalised Briton born in Germany, and if you read different news agencies, he's the founder of the uh, news agency Reuter, led an astounding concession in 17, sorry, 1872, when in one stroke of a bribe of £23 million in today's amount back then, he was given exclusive rights for 70 years to mine minerals, operate trams, build irrigation canals, cut down timber and establish a bank, the Imperial Bank of Persia. It was this extraordinary surrender of Persia's industrial potential into the hands of a foreigner and an accomplished one. So that's just sort of one example of just how far Persia had descended into being a zone, really, where foreigners could extract and profit from. So it wasn't just the British who were interested in Persia, but the Imperial Russians were as well. And from the 1870s, they were beginning to make gains in Central Asia, and their reach into Armenia and Azerbaijan was starting to really antagonise the British. From their point of view, Imperial Russia's intentions and capabilities in Central Asia posed a threat to India and to Persia. So India was a true and tested colony, of the Brits, but Persia was slightly different. It was kind of like India was Britain's wife, its first wife, whereas Persia was one of its important favourite side chicks. An important one because Persia's uh, geography is quite strategic, it behaved as, as a buffer zone against Britain's hold on India, the Arabian Peninsula and of course the Suez Canal. Now there are historians who think that the British were being a bit too uppity, a bit too cautious, and that the Russian threat of taking Persia, for instance, was relatively small, but they were making steps that caused the Brits some anxiety back then. The main development came in the 1890s when the Russians constructed the Trans-Caspian Railway. It ran from Semerkand to Merv and Kushk. So Merv um, is in Turkmenistan and Kushk is a town in the Herat region of Afghanistan, very close to Persia. Frank Capen writes that as a result of this railway, that they weren't just symbolic threats, but they were also physical threats. Quote, they were arteries which could allow provisions, weapons and soldiers to be delivered to the British Empire's back door. And this did genuinely cause anxiety and discontent among uh, the British army generals. One of them was quite ready to go. He stated that if Russia was to cross its railway line so much as an inch, it would be grounds for war. Now, whilst the British never actually launched a full-scale invasion of Persia, they did remain quite close, and they had a very corrupt, as I said, and sort of gross relationship. Britain was keen to keep courting Persia, its side chick, and the Shahs of the Qajar dynasty were not idiots either. They maximised on the competing interests for their country, and they grew very rich, very fat and happy on the loans, the sums, the jewels that Britain and Russia were, were keen to give, and it turned into a sort of subverted competition who could give the most. For example, in 18, 
1898, the British were left dumbstruck when they received news that the Shah had rejected their loan of £2 million. After a bit of diplomatic snooping, they discovered that the Russians were offering an even higher amount. So we can see that there has been, you know, in this period, this pattern of Persia with its enviable location of being at the crossroads for wider interests. Now, the Shahs and their corruption was not without consequence. Persians, farmers, the workers were by and large destitute, and the tradition of having external or foreigners run the country, where it only profited everyone but the Persians themselves, led to widespread unrest. By 1908, England, Russians and the Dutch, they were all scrambling to find the oil wells that they had been searching for since the 1890s. So, by the turn of the 20th century, it was really the promise of oil which was keeping Britain in Persia. Then, in 1908, the British hit the motherload, as Frankopan writes, and their drills found the first significant oil wells in the region. Delighted, a British army lieutenant sent a coded cable back to Britain, which said, quote, See Psalm 104, verse 15, second sentence. And it was a reference to a verse in the Bible, which said something like, The good Lord will bring earth, sorry, oil from the earth to make your faces shine with happiness. Now, the English managed to pretty much monopolise the oil wells in Persia, which leaves the French and the Soviets out of, out of the running. However, less than six years later, World War I breaks out, and they all have to unite against their new common enemy, Germany. So the Russians, the English and the French, they put their interests to one side, temporarily, to fight together. Doesn't last too long though, an alliance is only temporary after all, and the West starts to draw up its plans for the post-war period. So by 1916, the British government were taking into consideration the Persian oil fields as they were drawing up the possible new treaties for when the war, uh, for when the war ends. And they realised that if they were to enjoy unlimited access to Persia, they had to secure Mesopotamia, making it non-negotiable. Not to mention as well that they had found oil fields in Iraq um, too. They also wanted to secure Palestine for themselves under the guise of international, but really they wanted the port of Haifa because that would allow them to actually, you know, send the oil out of the region. So every year, estimated 4 million plus tonnes of oil was flowing out of Iraq, out of Persia to Haifa, and it was supplying the entire British Navy and more. It became the carotid artery of Britain, as Time magazine termed it. Now, these massive gains in oil were never properly secure, though, because the Russians were back. But this time they had new clothes on. They entered the post-war scene in communist clothes. And whilst they felt let down that the revolution or the communist revolution hadn't spread to Germany and France, they then turned their attention to their south, to Asia, and they were keen to initiate a revolution among the, quote, oppressed peoples of Persia, Armenia, Turkey, Mesopotamia, Syria and Arabia. Trotsky, a leading Bolshevik figure, before he got, you know, booted out, talked openly about the roads to revolution starting in the Punjab, the Bengal, and then making its way around. They were essentially mobilising to oust the British from Asia and from the Middle East. And what better place to start than Persia? So the communists were well aware of how deep and treacherous the grip the Anglicans had on Persia's oil was, and the foreign minister of the Soviet Union very openly said, quote, 
to the Persian people, your country's rulers have sold you to English robbers. An article in the newspaper Le Figaro, published in France and Persia, said, quote, This half-centimetre tall midget, i.e. the Shah, has sold his country for one centime. Now, despite rising anger, the British were not about to let go easily, not when they'd fought and paid so much. They did recognise, though, that to maintain their security over Persia, they would have to patch over the cracks and appoint a new Shah. So they started to do what they are good at, looking for a new candidate to take over, someone who could bring back control to the region, but also maintain British interests. After all, George Curzon, the one-time Viceroy of India, he did say that Persia was just a piece on a chessboard in a game that they were, you know, competing for world domination. These imperialists really knew how to incriminate themselves. Now, by 1920, the Russian Civil War was in full swing, and the war between the Reds, the Communists, and the Whites, the non-Communists, had spread into Central Asia and along Persia's northern border. The British government, obviously trying to aid the Whites, ordered another one of its army battalions, the Northwest Persian Army, into Tehran to prevent the communist fire from spreading. Now, the major general of this army uh, was Sir Edmund Ironside, who, as well as being a successful general and apparently a speaker of seven languages, originally a Scotsman, was also trying to figure out if he would be good at kingmaking in Persia, which at this time was pretty much near collapse. Within his regiment, he identified a sterling individual, the Colonel Mohammed Riza Khan, nicknamed Machine Gun Riza. Ironside called him the real life and soul of the show. Now, the extent of Ironside's meddling is contested by historians, but there is a recorded meeting of him asking Riza Khan to take control of Persia, essentially to throw a coup. And so, on the 21st of February, 1921, Reza Shah led a march on Tehran with a regiment of 600 Cossack soldiers. In a bloodless coup, Reza Khan overthrew the cabinet and installed himself as the new Shah of Iran, the first of only two Pahlavi rulers. He made himself Minister of War and Commander-in-Chief. His aim was to a. control the army, but also, more widely, restore prestige and authority in Iran, particularly in areas which had come to view Tehran with distaste during the corruption of the Qajar rulers. There's a host of things we can talk about when it comes to Reza Khan, but in short, his government brought about intense centralisation policies in Iran, modernisation in the form of national factories and railroads, you know, schools and hospitals, and, of course, a ruthless suppression of all dissident movements, in particular his policy of rooting out tribal independence, coupled with a strictly xenophobic, ethnic Persian uh, nationalist outlook. So leading on from that, we're going to discuss how the Kurdish position changed in the 1930s with a new Iranian ruler. Whilst he did not succeed in fully rooting out or eradicating the Kurdish tribes, he did weaken their standing and he changed the context in which they operated in. By the end of his rule, with his centralisation policies, the tribal chiefs were now relied on their land holdings which were controlled by Tehran. Tribal power, which for centuries had governed inner Kurdish politics, was to change significantly. So the idea of independence was starting to gain traction in the minds of many of the Kurdish leaders in Persian Kurdistan. 
In July 1918, the leading chiefs of the Mukri tribe of the Mahabad region discussed a scheme of an independent Kurdish state under British protection. They consulted this with Lieutenant Kenyon, the British consul in Kirmanshah. They pointed out that if the Armenians were to receive a state in the north of Turkey, then the Kurds would be fine with this if they could also set up their own independent state in the south. In December 1918, a group of chiefs visited Slimani from the tribes of Sinna, Sakhas and even Horaman to ask as a sort of joint deal if they could all be included in the British administered zones. Now the Kurdish tribes in Persia in the context of World War I, with Persia's lands being risen with conflict, were keen to maximise the opportunity to extend their control. The war had brought about financial and administrative ruin to Iran, with tribal fighting, anarchy and famine rampant across the region. The government in Tehran was weak, deemed unable to rule, and British and Soviet forces were still in the country. Hindsight is such a funny thing because it's, it's strange to think now just how much the Kurdish tribes relied on British support because, I mean, for their context, it makes sense. You know, it's just, there, there's just been a world war. They've been now divided into four different regions. The Persian government was on its knees. Turkey was only recently founded. So the British in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, seemed like their best possible chance of, you know, having a strong allyship. And yet the Kurds, despite them asking for help or aid, never received it because the British, at the end of the day, were there to serve their own interests and the Kurds almost like didn't know just how duplicitous or double dealing the British were and they were willing to do anything you know lie all the way to hell to get what they wanted and if that meant you know stamping on, on people's aspirations then so be it um yeah it's just a bit strange to think about how much they tried to rely on the British who were clearly not going to do anything about their position. Anyway, so one of the most important Kurdish tribes in the Persian region was the Shikak tribe. Now they were divided into a couple of like one or two factions and the most important faction was led by our individual for today, Ismail Agha, more commonly known as Simkor Agha. Now Simkor was one of the most important personalities to emerge in Persian Kurdistan and his actions in the 30s in many ways paved the way for more Kurdish leaders or people to revolt against their host governments. Now Reza Khan's aim was to a demilitarize the Kurdish tribes completely and b bring them into uniformity within an ethnic Persian character and c if they resisted kill them. Now, from 1921 to 23, the government troops began to take a series of measures which would challenge Kurdish borderland autonomy. So, flocks of sheep were seized, the livelihood of many of these tribes, an annual poll tax was issued, and, of course, there was forced national conscription. Why not use them as soldiers for your own national army? In one example, Tehran's forces shot dead 12 Kurdish men who refused conscription. Now, Persia was also made the only acceptable language, even though Iran was a country of um, linguistic diversity, including Kurdish, Turkish, Luri, Arabic, and Baluchi dialects. 
1928, they banned all traditional honorific titles like Beg or Emir or Ara. Men had to wear the Pahlavi hat, traditional forms of dress were banned. And so in many ways, these policies echo quite similar to that of um, Kemal Mustafa's in Turkey. Broadly, the Kurds of Persia had become accustomed to a certain level of autonomy and their proximity within the borderland regions allowed them flexibility to escape um, you know, Persian persecution. Many Persian tribes, as in the Kurdish ones, who had ties with the Hauraman region, which, is, which was now in um, Iraq, would cross the border, hand their weapons to the Jaff tribe for safekeeping instead of handing them over to the government um, in Iran. In 1927 to 1935, the Persian government clashed with the Meriwan tribes of Persia who were being backed by the Haurami tribes in Iraq. Now, obviously, the government response was brutal. In 1926, as an example, um, every single Kurdish prisoner was executed by the Persians. There were scant numbers and records kept as their deaths were A, in line with Reza's policy, and B, they were expedient. It, it didn't really matter. In 1924, 20 Lord Chiefs were summarily executed, despite some of them swearing loyalty to Reza. Their heads were sent for display to Hamadan, a Persian stronghold city. So essentially, they were killing off potential Kurdish leaders who could unite the tribes, um, because without a strong and unifying leader, any movement, whatever the cause, is hindered. So let's discuss Simkor Ara and how he tried to thwart this plan. Nassim Khor recognised the possibilities for power gains in the chaos of World War I. In 1918, he had organised a strategic marriage with one of Sheikh Taha's sisters. Now, Sheikh Taha was a member of a powerful Kurdish family in southeast Turkey. Together, Simkor and Taha could have, if unimpeded by a greater power, they would have been able to form a significant cross-border Kurdish alliance. Now, the Iranian government knew about these activities and Simkor's perceived aggression, and they began to think of ways to remove him. They began with a classic parcel bomb disguised as a box of sweets. The plan backfired, literally, as it killed one of Simkor's men and not him. Now, this incident is said to have propelled Simkor into confronting Iran more aggressively. By the summer of 1918, Simkor had organised enough men from the different surrounding tribes and established his authority west of Lake Urumiya. One by one, many of the towns fell to under sort of his control, Selmas, Khotur, Khoi, Bana and Serdasht. Now the scholarship on reasons for his success differs. Some attribute that he was loaned rifles and supplies by the Soviets, who were keen to weaken Iran. Others cite that whilst there were some tribes who hated Simkor, many of them rallied behind him. Importantly, two of the great Mukri tribes pledged to support him. McDowell, the historian, also writes that the context helped him. There were these rumours constantly swirling around that despite Reza's takeover, they were too weak to assert control, and that the Soviets were planning to break Iran into smaller zones under their rule. At the same time, Reza Khan was dealing with rebellions elsewhere. The laws were fighting back, there were Turkmen raids around Gurgan, not to mention that they were trying to marshal enough forces to fight back as well, because in each instant of Simkor's takeover of the different cities, the Persians had been defeated. However, Simkor's seeming win 
or success and triumph was about to come to an end. In August 1922, Reza Shah sent a strong battalion of 8,000 men to an assembly point north of Lake Urmia. He was ready to fight back. By the 9th of August, the tide had turned to the Persians. Favor and Simcor was defeated. The Persians began chasing and retaking cities and towns. Selmas was retook, as was Urmia. Simcor fled to Iraq, seeking sanctuary there. He didn't give up, though. He did try to rally support from tribes in the Kurdish regions in Iraq, as well as Turkey. But by that point, 1922, the British were sitting on their hands on the Kurdish issue. They had no real aims to help or aid. If they were to support a Kurdish secession movement in Iran, not only would that anger it would echo in Iraq as well for the Kurds in their own region, not to mention that they were trying to prevent Turkey, currently fighting its war of independence, from taking parts of North Iraq for itself. Cecil J. Edmonds, a British officer for Mesopotamia and Persia, who was incredibly influential in the region, met with Simcor, and he recorded Simcor as saying, uh, the quote is, I had come in the hope that the British would champion the cause of Kurdish freedom against two governments hostile to us, Iran and Turkey. If I am wrong in that assumption, I have no wish to demand asylum and will make my own way back to the tribes and do my best alone. Now, Simcor did return to Iran and he did try to launch another set of attacks and assaults, but they didn't manage to gain the same traction as they had done previously, and he ends up going back to Iraq and Syria, sort of floating around there for a while. In 1929, Rosa decides to put an end to this troublesome chief, and he offers Simcor a full pardon and to become governor of Ushnu, southwest of Lake Urmia. Simcor agrees, and he arrives at the city. He receives a message that a Persian government official was to pay him a visit. Simcor and his men set out to meet him, but the official never arrives. Instead, a messenger comes to tell them that his car had broken down. So Simcor returns to Ushnu, and as they approach his residence, members of the Persian army were stationed on the rooftops, and they opened fire on all sides. Simcor and 12 supporting chiefs, as well as his followers, were mowed down. A report later surfaced that Simcor had been warned that this whole clemency was a setup. He was aware that it might be treacherous, but he refused to run away again. It was not the first time he had experienced an attempt on his life after all. Now, other tribal and religious leaders were also ruthlessly assassinated. Umar Khan died in mysterious circumstances in prison. The chief of Makri met a similar fate. Sheikh Taha also found himself imprisoned and later killed off. Reza Shah also conducted forced displacements of the Kurdish tribal areas. The Jalali were expelled from the region and the Kalbari were moved away from Kirmanshah, a Kurdish stronghold, and forced to settle in Isfahan. So forcible transfer, confiscation of herds, the banning of language, customs and tribal migration, as well as assassinations, became the order of the day. By the late 30s, the Kurds had been beaten into submission. Historians state that if Reza lived and ruled for longer, the Kurds might have truly been assimilated, with no vestige of them left. However, World War II brought about a slight relief for Persian Kurdistan when in 1941, Reza Shah was forced to abdicate. He was, ex he was exiled from Persia, guess who, by the British, within their Anglo-Soviet joint invasion of Iran. 
This brief period, 1941 to 1946, left a vacuum of opportunity in which a new Kurdish leader, the most famous perhaps and who remarkably amongst Kurds, is widely respected and commemorated for his loyalty and martyrdom, Qazi Muhammad, who was one of the main factors in the formation of the Republic of Mahabad in 1946, the first independent Kurdish formation of statehood, which will be next episode's topic. So, was Simko a nationalist leader? McDowell asks. In what way do we judge nationalism? Can we apply this idea of nationalism to a group of people, the Kurds, who were spread thin and far between four different countries? Simko certainly spoke of independence and did, did manage to unite a number of tribes around him. He even initiated an alliance cross-country with Sheikh Taha in Turkish Kurdistan. He did speak about freedom and autonomy for the Kurds being their own rulers and he did also publish um, an independent Kurdish magazine as well. However, the evidence against him is also fairly strong. He didn't impose a unified tax system or a, an, an administrative policy on the areas he controlled for a while. He did fall out with many of the other tribes, not just in um, Iranian Kurdistan but also in the Turkish parts as well and he never truly vocalized in any real or tangible way that he was trying to unite not just all the Kurds in Iran but the Kurds in Turkey, Iraq and Syria as well. And moreover I think it would be too bleak and too damning to simply look at the negatives because the positives for the Kurdish national movements in the future was that Simko's uh, rebellions, it did set a precedent that the Shikak, the tribe, um, and the other ones in Iran as well, they formed a noteworthy tribal confederation and there was this outlook of unification. Moreover, it would be refreshing to step away from a nationalist paradigm every now and again and to not judge it through those lens or those sort of standards, but rather that it was a resistance movement and even if you leveled the you know, accusation that Simcoe was simply trying to um, maximise the opportunity for himself, it, it, it was a selfish power grab, it was still a notable, altogether Kurdish resistance movement. Lastly, the story of Simcoe also suggests this interesting, contradictory running theme in Kurdish history, that the Kurds and their tribes was both the strength and the weakness of Kurdish aspirations because whilst they supported Simko, they made substantial gains. As soon as they experienced their first defeat or their first major loss, they abandoned their support. They didn't regroup, rearm or re-strategize. It was this strange one-time implosion which then fizzled out. So yes, I would agree that Simko wasn't a national nationalist man with a nationalist outlook. His aims were rather provincial, even self-centred, if you wanted to argue that. But there's no saying that if the surrounding tribes had regrouped and he had received support from the Kurds in Iraq and even Syria, he might very well have succeeded in seceding from Iran. So this brings us to the end of episode three. Thank you so much for listening. Next time we'll be looking at the Republic of Mahabad, which was a stronger nationalist movement still in Iran um, post-World War II. So we'll look at what it was, how it was formed, and also the reasons for its eventual downfall. 
Please make sure to subscribe on all podcast platforms and follow the Instagram page, Voicemails from History, to make sure you stay up to date for when the next episode drops. Until then, this was your host, Mr. Amin. Thank you for listening.